Time marches on and leaves behind those who are not equipped for tomorrow. We cannot predict what will happen in the future, but we at Regent University aim to prepare you for it. With world-class professors in over 150 programs, the opportunities to find success in your field are many. So don't let tomorrow pass you by. The journey to your brightest future begins here. Visit regent.edu slash learn more. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to this Friday edition of The Dan Proft Show. Thank you for joining us. Follow us at danproftshow.com and at Dan Proft and at Dan Proft Show on social media. Uh, let's get right to it. We have uh, so much to cover with our next guest. He is famed Harvard Law professor, former Harvard Law professor, Alan Dershowitz. He's also the author of The Case Against Impeaching Trump. And that's the topic again uh, of the day. Professor Dershowitz, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Good. I could write another book called The Case Against Impeaching Trump again. <laughs> exactly. The Case Against Impeaching Trump after he leaves office. And, yes, they uh, give you, you endless know, endless is, material. Uh, right, right. Uh, well, let, let's start before we even get, and I, I know what your assessment is of uh, whether or not you can pursue impeachment and conviction after a president leaves office. But before we get there, just your assessment of what you saw from the House uh, and the impeachment proceeding on Wednesday. Well, I saw six independent constitutional violations by the House in one day, a world record. They violated the First Amendment by impeaching him for a speech that was clearly protected by Brandenburg versus Ohio and other First Amendment jurisprudence. Second, they violated the provision regarding what is the criteria for impeachment, because it isn't a high crime or misdemeanor. Third, they violated due process by not giving his lawyers an opportunity even to present defense in front of the House. They just voted, which Hamilton called the greatest danger, just having impeachment by vote who has the most votes. Um, going on and on and on by saying that they can <clears throat> continue to try him after he leaves office. <clears throat> they violated those provisions of the Constitution that if they do try him, it would be a bill of attainder because a uh, bill of attainder prohibition in the Constitution says you can't try a citizen um, and disqualify him uh, in front of the Senate unless essentially it's part of the impeachment process. And once a president leaves office, he can't be removed. And if he can't be removed, the jurisdiction of the House and the Senate ends. So we're seeing massive violations of the Constitution that will serve as terrible precedents in the future. Today used against the Republicans, tomorrow used against Democrats, and the day after tomorrow used against ordinary citizens. So it was a very, very bad day for the Constitution last week. With respect to uh, the Senate trial that, uh, I, I, at least it seems, the uh, perspective of Senate Democrats, they wanted to begin in earnest after Biden is inaugurated on January 20th. Um, so is there... Is is is, it, is there? Would you, if you were advising Trump, uh, attempt to uh, forestall that trial by going to court and saying uh, this is unconstitutional and, and laying out the case? Yes, absolutely. Um, and there's no precedent for trying a president once he's been removed. You know, Richard Nixon resigned. Um, clearly, he committed impeachable offenses. But I don't remember any serious effort to continue the impeachment after he left office. And I don't think people back then in, in the 70s 
would have thought that there was a constitutional basis for impeaching uh, Richard Nixon after he left office. Uh, you know, they could have said, look, we're going to impeach him so we can't run again. Um, but uh, they didn't uh, they didn't try to do that. And I think it's foolish and, again, unconstitutional to try to do it with Mr. Trump. When he leaves office on January 20th at noon, he's Mr. Trump. He's like the rest of us. And if you give the Senate power to try people or the House the power to impeach people, once they've left office, it could apply to any citizen who wants to run for office uh, and who's eligible to run. If the, de- if the Democrats control the Senate, let's assume they increase their majority in the 2022 election, and then a Republican superstar comes along and the senator saying, gee, you know, this guy is scary. He may actually win and beat us in 2024. Why don't we impeach him? And they have a trial and impeach him, even though he's no longer, even though he's never served as president. That, that just can't be what the framers had in mind. And it's not what the framers had in mind. And so it should be resisted if they have to take it to court to do that. Yeah, I think that would be a good thing. There, there does seem to be precedent, though, for impeaching an elected official, a federal official, after no. their— No, there t- isn't. Well, uh, the, the William Belknap, who was uh, U.S. No, he U- wasn't an elected official. He wasn't an elected He was an appointed. He was a cabinet official. Appointed. You're right, Secretary, or Secretary of War. Right. Yeah, but, and, and what happened there is there were two votes. <clears throat> the first vote narrowly said the Senate had a jurisdiction. But the second vote, he was acquitted, and he was acquitted— by senators who believed he was factually and legally guilty, but who concluded that there was no jurisdiction. So that doesn't serve as a precedent. He was acquitted, and he was acquitted largely on the ground that the Senate didn't have jurisdiction. So at, at, at best, it's neutral. It's not really a precedent. And even if it were a precedent, it's wrong. It's simply wrong. Hmm. And and the I mean I I think uh, the I think that your argument is persuasive, and, and uh, Judge Ludwig and others have made it too. If you just look at the the black letter of the Constitution in this area. Sure. I mean, right? It, it's it's commonsensical. It's just it, if if the punishment is removal, how can you remove somebody who's already removed yeah. himself? You know, by by law. Well, I guarantee you that my colleagues at Harvard, particularly Professor Lawrence Tribe, yeah, if the shoe were on the other foot, and this were a Democratic president who were being uh, impeached after he left office, he would be coming up with all these brilliant constitutional arguments saying you can't impeach a president once he's removed. But, you know, but tribes are hypocrite, and he's a partisan. And he always comes down on the side of his politics and on the side of his ideology. Um, you know, when, Nixon, when Clinton was president, he said a sitting president couldn't be charged with a crime. When Trump became president, he said, oh, I changed my mind. A sitting president can be charged with a crime. So you can be sure that a lot of these people who call themselves scholars but are really just zealot advocates who hide behind their scholarship and the Constitution to make political points, you can be sure that in most of these instances they'd be on the other side. If a Democratic president made the same speech that Trump made in Washington, D.C., they'd say it was constitutionally protected, but if Trump makes it, it's not constitutionally protected. That's not the rule of law. That's the rule of human beings, and we have to resist it. Well, it's something else, too. It's it's almost like the the, the Democrats... Um... You know, if you kind of get past all of their white supremacy bloviations, they're not even really arguing that it was the speech itself. They're arguing that he should be impeached for a failure to 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 more to quickly enough respond once violence broke out right. and tell the crowd to dispel. Well, they have a good political point and moral point. I think he should have done that. I yeah, I agree. Wrong. I also I also condemn the speech. I think the speech was not the right thing to do. I think the whole 
rally, although constitutionally protected, was ill-advised. Uh, but those aren't grounds for impeachment. Those are grounds for not voting for somebody or not voting for that person's party or uh, relegating them to the desperate of history or morally attacking them. But it's not the grounds for impeachment. Failure to say the right thing is not a high crime and misdemeanor. It may be a moral sin, but it's not a high crime and misdemeanor. If this trial were to move forward, uh, I know that uh, Pat Cipollone and Jay Sekulow have said they're, they're not going to participate in terms of uh, defending the president. Are, are, are you going to possibly represent the president? Well, I, A, I haven't been asked by the president, but B, I don't see any role for a lawyer. There was no role for a lawyer in the House impeachment. They just shut out all lawyers. They just said, we're going to vote. And if there were a trial in the Senate after he left office, it would be an unconstitutional trial. And I think the tactic that I would advise the president, and I don't advise him, I just say what I want to say on television and radio, I would advise him uh, to simply challenge the jurisdiction of the Senate, not to participate in the trial. So, you know, this is political theater, and I'm neither a politician nor an actor. So I don't want to participate in political theater. So, you would, if, so, yeah, the implications of him not participating, putting on no defense, and then the right. Senate moving forward with whatever vote they move, they, they either acquit or they convict, and then yeah. they go to another vote to pro- prohibit him from ever running for office again or some such thing like that. So, um, but it, it, it is, is, I mean, it, you don't want arguably the Senate, uh, Congress, to get away with doing something that's unconstitutional. So, so you challenge him in court, yeah, right. Yeah. And so, but, but the, so the president would have to, to to challenge. He can he can issue a preemptory challenge to the trial, and also if that doesn't go anywhere, a challenge uh, to any Senate action afterwards as well, couldn't he? Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, and I, that's what I would advise him to do: to make the primary challenge not on the merits, but on the jurisdiction, the power of the Senate to continue to try somebody after he left office, even if he was impeached while he was in office. Uh, I think the Constitution is very clear that the jurisdiction of the Senate ends the moment he leaves office, uh, just the way the jurisdiction of Congress ended over President Richard Nixon once he resigned. And and one one would have to uh, to uh, to believe that this would be fast tracked to the Supreme Court. Well, you know, it would be it would be fast tracked. I don't know how quick it could get to the Supreme Court. I don't see any basis for bringing it to the Supreme Court under original jurisdiction. So it would have to go through the. Uh, court system, but you can do it fast track. He is Professor Alan Dershowitz, former professor at Harvard Law, author of The Case Against Impeaching Trump. Professor Dershowitz, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. And, you know, I also have a podcast that people can listen to and yes. hear my views. Today I conducted a seminar on my podcast about this very issue. It's called The Dirt Show. You can get it on Rumble or YouTube or any of the platforms. Very good. The Dirt Show on Rumble, YouTube. Uh, professor Dershowitz, thanks so much. Thank you so much. Cause you ain't worth the salt in my tea This is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. I'm bridging our conversation with Alan Dershowitz to our upcoming one with Paul Kanger. I want to talk about a school district in suburban Chicago and um, why it has national implications. 
I've been asked a few times in the last couple of weeks from callers into the morning show I do in Chicago. You know, what are we supposed to do? It's not just sort of what I what am I supposed to do? Throw up my hands like give me advice and counsel on what you think I should do to meaningfully participate in defending a free society, generally speaking, is really the question. Defending America as we know it. My answer is basically start from the home and, and go from there. Uh, maybe take an interest in local government, and this gets to the school uh, district I want to talk about, where I can exercise some influence because, you know, this is my school district where a lot of the kids and families are part of in my community or your local unit of government, your regional government, your state government. just seems to me that's the way to do it. And it's, it's, it's a little bit um, more substantive than think globally and act locally. It's not a bumper sticker. It's really the lifestyle most of you are probably already living. You're not ascribing as much value to the contributions you're making as, frankly, you should. And maybe there's an opportunity to make more, but make more where you have trust relationships built and you can leverage those trust relationships to be a, a thought leader, where when you stand up, when you're called to stand up, people take notice. A good example of this is the need for people to step up in Evanston, Skokie, District 65, again, suburban Chicago, Evanston, the home of Northwestern University. This is a very liberal area of suburban Chicago. District 65 also, by the way, profiled in the Wall Street Journal not so long ago for their anti-racist curriculum. And by anti-racist, I mean racist because that's what it is. The only suburban school district where nobody, they're not doing anything for K through 8, much less at the high school level. A couple of uh, parents of kids in that school district happen to be pediatricians. And they have urged, they did last month actually, beginning December, to open schools for in-person learning. They argued other schools have safely engaged in in-person learning, and not just private schools, and that it's essential for a child's social and emotional development. Pediatrician said that many children were suffering mental health issues and were falling behind in learning due to the remote learning path that was available. This is from the school superintendent. The privilege and communications I received is often blatant, asking me why myself or my board prioritize the help of teachers and staff when they should be considered essential workers. Never mind that our community makeup is completely different from many school districts who have been able to successfully open. That's not true. And in a sense of what success means. When we challenge this privilege, we get hit with FOIA requests or Office of Civil Rights complaints. I want to be clear, our, our efforts to fight the pandemic of racism, get ready for it, that has taken just as many lives as COVID-19. I'd love to see the science and data behind that any more than the science and data the good superintendent would like to put forward in defense of the school shutdown, but you're not going to get it. He continued, we will not stop. We will continue to provide equity training for our staff. We will continue to diversify our workforce. We will continue to build an anti-racist curriculum, read racist curriculum. We will continue to build learning environments where all students can thrive and be their authentic selves. Isn't that wonderful? They can thrive and be their authentic selves, just not in the classroom, which also in part precludes many of them from thriving or discovering their authentic selves. The school board president piling on. In the past six months alone, we have experienced different yet in very personal ways the workings of white supremacy. Just again, as an aside, Evanston and Skokie, I don't know what the totals are, but I did go to Northwestern. I know a little bit about Evanston and Skokie in that area. I mean, that that is 85% left. And yet the school board of the local public school district for K through 8 and the superintendent are beset by manifestations of white supremacy, the workings of white supremacy, says the school board president. 
the way it is weaponized against our black leaders and any of us that are committed to prioritizing the needs of black and brown children. Uh-huh. And so somebody disagrees with them. That disagreement, as you know, with anti-racist curricula, with uh, people of color or people who are say they're representing the interests of people of color, that constitutes violence, which is the working of white supremacy. So you just better shut up doctor whoever who has i don't care about your expertise and whether or not school should open we have an agenda here and the agenda is to incubate young leftist activists the agenda is to racialize and radicalize kids the agenda is to teach kids that their entire identity and worth is bound up in their skin color and that white people are bad they're out to get you that Men and women, regardless of their color and uniform, are bad. They're out to get you. And that all you can do is leverage your identity for political power so that you get to tell other people what to do and when they can do it. So that you can run roughshod over other people's lives before they run roughshod over your life. Hobbesian state of nature stuff is what this is. And um, against the backdrop of the lack of political or professional consequence for these goons at the school board level, at the school superintendent level, not to mention the mayoral or gubernatorial levels, will allow it to persist. So what should I be doing? What could I be doing? Boy, if you see this kind of uh, power drunkness, drunkenness, if you see this sort of really spiteful identitarian politics and you see it negatively impacting even if you don't have kids in the school you see it negatively impacting so many families and so many children what did i say at the outset stand up when you should stand up there are you know intellectual and principled fights to have everywhere so look for opportunities to meaningfully constructively peacefully participate in them yeah that's the way that you set the counter example that maybe has followed and maybe starts to unwind these horrific examples that we see persist around the country before we uh, you know, go to trying to divide ourselves by red and blue, either by state or by some other, some other grouping. There are things that can be done. Your opinion matters. Your voice can be powerful within your circles of influence and maybe to build from there. I mean, we have... Lots of stories over the years of people who just started out in a mom's group or a dad's club. People started out as a city council person or school board member and either rose through the ranks in politics or went on to do other things, found schools, alternative schools, teach at alternative schools, uh, you know, private schools or charter schools by alternative. That's what I mean. Um, you know, don't just give in to thinking that yeah, blasting away back and forth on Twitter is or, or social media before you get uh, before you get zapped is the uh, is the only thing that you can contribute. It just isn't. The other stuff, though, at the local level is a little bit more difficult, but it's also face to face. It's also face to face. So I think there's the opportunity for more progress to be made there than there is, as I said, trying to tackle big tech, trying to tackle Democrat socialists at the federal level, trying to tackle the, the academics 
except maybe the teachers at your kid's school or even the teachers, professors at your kid's college where you can organize, perhaps with alumni, other families who have kids at the college. We just think sort of sensibly, commonsensically, really, about these opportunities that are ever-present. And pick your fight. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. So some of the uh, first legislation to be filed in this new edition of Congress D.C. statehood, of course, that's a favorite. Also, as it uh, pertains to elections, though, Nancy Pelosi and House Democrat Socialists want to impose California state-style election rules nationwide. Uh, Legislation would require every state to register voters based on names in state and federal databases, any such as anyone receiving food stamps or who interacts with a state DMV, mandates same-day and online voter registration, expands mail and early voting, Limit states' ability to remove voter rolls, to remove voters from the rolls, that is. Also, campaign finance provisions that would uh, target the political speech of conservatives require some nonprofits to disclose publicly the names of donors who give more than $10,000, even if those groups aren't taking part in candidate elections. This is a way to, you know, use their allies in the purge to target the donor class for conservatives and Republicans as well. And uh, with respect to the administration of elections, you know, I'm not even sure anymore, even if the election rules, the laws were changed or they were guarded in places like Pennsylvania, it would matter. And I point to this story of the final state race in Pennsylvania being decided, a state Senate race in Allegheny County. At issue between uh, the Democrat incumbent state senator and the Republican challenger were 300 absentee ballots in Allegheny County that voters neglected to date. If the undated ballots were counted, the Democrat would win. If the undated ballots were not counted, the Republican would win. And the law is voters must date and sign the absentee ballot application in order for it to be counted. But that's not what a judge ruled and a higher court declined to essentially take up the case. And so the Democrat incumbent wins because ballots were counted that run afoul of the black letter of the law. So reluctant are courts to overturn the stated election results, leaving that to local election authorities. So if local election authorities say it's okay to break the rules, to break the law, then it's okay to break the law and you're not going to have courts intercede. Well, then how can we even have a conversation if that's going to be the culture at the state level in places like Pennsylvania uh, and then you're, you know, we'll see what happens at the federal level with the air support that Nancy Pelosi and Democrat socialists are trying to provide. Then is it even worth having a discussion about, uh, well, at the state legislative level, that's where we need to make sure that uh, you don't have administrative agencies or courts usurping the authority of the state legislatures. I guess state legislatures don't matter and state laws don't matter if they're Republican controlled or inspired. For more on all of this, we're pleased to be joined by Paul Kanger, who is a political science professor at Grove City College in Pennsylvania. Paul, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks, Dan. Good to be back. Uh, what about uh, the states you call home and uh, 
you know, the substantive case there, forgetting all the different uh, accusations about voter fraud, just the unwillingness to enforce the letter of the state election law in Pennsylvania. Yeah, so this isn't a surprise. Typically, you would take this to the Pennsylvania State Supreme Court, which is five elected Democrats versus two elected Republicans, and it was the Pennsylvania State Supreme Court that blew everything up here to begin with. They're the ones who, going outside of their constitutional authority in the state of Pennsylvania, Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, they changed election law which to allow mail-in ballots, to change the dates, and when the mail-in ballots were allowed to come in, they are not allowed to do that. That's the province of the state legislature. But they went ahead and did it anyway. And then after the election, when all of this was challenged in the state of Pennsylvania by people like Pennsylvania State Senator uh, Doug Mastriano, Mike Kelly, who's actually my congressman from the Mercer County, Pennsylvania area, the state Supreme Court laughed at them and said, you're late. And they cited this thing called latches. So it's fascinating, they, and this applies to exactly what you just read to, to listeners. They intervene or intercede when it's to their benefit, and then they don't intervene or intercede when it's to their benefit. So in this case, they're, I guess, going to not intercede, and then that way these ballots without dates on them can be counted, and that way their guy can win. And liberals turn around and they accuse Republicans and Trump supporters and everybody else of being the political ones, right? But, but, but the, these five Democrats on the, on the state Supreme Court, it, it's just a nightmare. And, and, and how could an activist judge just go and do something and then just kind of get away with it? It's just a crazy, maddening thing. And, and you know, this, is, um, this happened in Pennsylvania. In Pennsylvania and, you know, quite possibly in the other states as well. It's just, um, it, 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 it's so frustrating. When we come back with Grove City College poli-sci professor Paul Kangor, I want to uh, get his reaction to the resignation letter from John Eastman, a former professor at Chapman University's School of Law. We'll pick it up there with Paul Kangor right up. The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. We're talking about the rule of law as it pertains to the uh, administration of elections with Grove City College poli sci professor Paul Kanger. And Paul, I wanted to get your reaction to the resignation or retirement letter, depending on how you want to couch it, of John Eastman from Chapman University School of Law. He, as you know, he uh, committed the sin of being a counselor advisor to the president of the United States. Uh, that would be Trump. And he, and he compounded that by articulating legal arguments like the one and having legal conversations, conversations rooted in the law like the one we're having about uh, Pennsylvania. And there was a, a move afoot among the uh, professorate, mostly the undergrad professorate, to have him drummed out. And he basically says, you know, it's not worth it for me. I'm going, I'm retiring in the face of this sort of anti-intellectual mob mentality on campus. Right. Eastman points out in this really beautifully written letter 
that it wasn't law school professors who challenged him. It was it was these basically activist liberal poli sci professors. And he writes here in Pennsylvania, the partisan elected judiciary in the conduct of Pennsylvania's election, they usurped the sole power of the legislature. The PA election results couldn't be certified. Well, I won't go through and I won't read it, but it's a, it's a lot of what he just said. What's interesting about this, one of the people emailed this to me this morning, in fact, a fellow academic, that's how, that's how I got it first. She said to me, she, she said, you know, I really wish that Eastman here would stay and fight. But on the other hand, you can't blame the guy for just saying enough is enough. I don't want to be in this to coin or to borrow from a liberal phrase that applies here. I don't want to be part of this hostile work environment, right, where I just get harassed all the time. And if, you know, if you're going to turn your college over to leftists and, you know, let the leftists run the asylum, you know, I'm going to go somewhere else. You know, why do I have to spend the last five, ten years of my professional career in misery and he points out here at the end of this article, where is he going? I think um, I'm currently on leave from Chapman while serving as the visiting professor of conservative thought at the Benson Center for the Study of Western Civilization at the University of Colorado Boulder. And I think he says that, Dan, between that and a Claremont position, he's going there. Well, that's right. So, so that, the, the problem is, um, is some people um, like Eastman have the luxury of finding a soft landing spot a lot of people don't and as right. soon as and as soon as you have that you know to, to, to some extent you have more of that uh, stratification by ideology or, or political philosophy um, well you're far overwhelmed in these institutions by the left starting in academia and they will come for whatever you think is a safe haven so going back right. to your overarching question you know how do you address this when the courts decide they're not going to interpret the law? How do you address it when the legislature decides they're not going to make the law? How do you uh, uh, address it when the executive says he's not going to execute the law? I, I, I don't know. I, I don't think anybody knows, but I, I think we know where it goes. Yeah, and, and in fact, uh, Levin asked me that question on Sunday, and I, and I said, if you're looking for a kind of practical solution, I would say one thing would be that the Republican National Committee should should hold like a big seminar or conference, right? It may be the summer where, where they invite Pennsylvania or where they invite Republican legislators from all around the country and bring in legal people and have kind of brainstorming sessions. What can we do to kind of stop this kind of thing in the future? I mean, they're literally going to have to hold like seminars to figure out what do we do when something like this happens? How, how, do you, how do you stop this? And by the, on, on the Eastman thing, let me say this too, Dan, that uh, this case involves the election, the November election, um, with Eastman you know, representing Donald Trump and so forth. But this kind of hostile environment, I mean, this is, gonna, this is already hitting hyperspeed in the academy on matters of race and LGBTQ. And I, and I mean, that's where it's going to be really bad. I wrote, I wrote a piece for American Spectator. It's posted there right, right now, uh, January 6, 2021, the new Kristallnacht, <laughs> right? the new Pearl Harbor, the new 9-11. And I quote this uh, professor from University of Texas at Austin, and he's listed in this article in Inside Higher Ed as a, quote, scholar of democracy, unquote. And he says the event of the Capitol is another 
attack on the U.S. government by terrorists. Now, that's an exact quote. Uh, quote, the attackers are motivated by xenophobia, racism, and hate, unquote. And, and, and then that not being enough, Dan, right? He, he takes this from the, you know, the attackers of the insurrection at the Capitol and, and puts them aside, puts Donald Trump aside, and then goes after the entire, entire GOP leadership. By the way, this would include you know, Kevin McCarthy and Mitch McConnell, presumably. Quote, today's terrorism is at the heart of the Republican Party which now, in much of its leadership, has become a white supremacist Al-Qaeda. That guy sounds like a speechwriter for the House and Senate Democrat Socialist Caucuses. Well, he has an endowed chair at the University of Texas at Austin, and he's calling the entire Republican, well, he's saying, quote, much of the Republican leadership, unquote, has become a white supremacist Al-Qaeda. So, so for people thinking, like some of the people emailing me now, you know, kind of David French types and, and, and others, that, mm. that after they've gotten the, uh, Donald Trump run out of office, it's going to cool now, and at least they won't be calling Republicans white supremacists anymore. Oh, no. No, 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 no. This has just begun. It, it, I mean, this yes. is and it's not just people who voted for Donald Trump. If, you are a, if you've got an R next to your name... Right. And, and, and believe me, you know, they're going after Ronald Reagan retroactively. Uh, they went after George. H. I can give you quotes from Maxine Waters calling George H.W. Bush a racist. Right. They went after George W. Bush with Donald Trump. It was a little easier for them. Uh, but but now they're going to go after any Republican, anyone in academia. The goal is is to label and smear anyone who's a Republican or a conservative. With with the, with a scarlet R, they are. Yeah, I'm, I'm very rampant. much. Yeah, I'm very much looking forward to David French's commentary in the coming months and years. Now that he and other Never Trumpers got what they wanted, Paul Kanger, professor of political science at Grove City College in Grove City, PA, contributor to the American Spectator, author of The Devil and Karl Marx: Communism's Long March of Death, Deception, and Infiltration. Paul, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. All right, you guys take care. God bless. Listen to podcast of the show at com. Welcome back to the show, and I just wanted to touch on the sort of the latest and, and best information we have about the capital attack and who the responsible parties were. Obviously, this is a story that has uh, developed from the original understanding of what occurred on January 6th to what uh, may have occurred, at, well, at least at whose hands it may have occurred. That's really the point, who was accountable for it. And as we talked about yesterday, including with the former FBI counterintelligence head, Frank Figaluzzi, uh, there's, a lo- there's certainly reason to be open-minded that it could have been agent provocateurs, at least in part inciting the violence, which certainly would undermine the impeachment case, something that maybe you thought you would want to address. 
uh, in a, an impeachment proceeding like the one the House had on Wednesday. But, of course, that was a drive-by impeachment, not a serious impeachment. It had all the seriousness of passing a pro forma resolution in the House, so they weren't interested. But the reporting has changed, and in part because of the arrests of people like John Sullivan, who is a, a known Antifa Black Lives Matter organizer and filmed himself at the Capitol and inside the Capitol. Yeah, he had the garb of a Trump supporter. He had the equipment of a journalist, but he admits to essentially being neither. Uh, and uh, the video is out. It's all fake. My na- my my face is not on Instagram. I learned that shit already. I can wear. I'm gonna wear a Trump hat. I'm gonna wear a Trump hat. I bought one today. <laughs> I was wearing a Trump hat at the last Trump at the Trump rally during the daytime because I was like, nah, that shit ain't happening, bro. Yeah, I was. Oh yeah, I was just a journalist, but I use that all the time. Yeah, I'm just a journalist. I'm here recording. I got my camera on my shoulder. Literally have my big camera on my shoulder right here. And he was inside the Capitol, I should mention, cheerleading too, communicating with the other rioters and cheerleading it all. And he also filmed from a side angle the the shooting death of Ashley Babbitt, uh, which gave some additional perspective. But anyway, again, this guy, John Sullivan, has been arrested. Uh, now, John Solomon, not to be confused, just the news, who's a great reporter, Uh, made this observation based on what is coming to the fore about what happened on January 6th. We once before were sold the story that there was a spontaneous attack. It occurred in Benghazi. Right. Susan Rice, about to go back into the Joe Biden administration, told us it was a spontaneous attack spurred by an anti-Muslim video. Right. It was a terror attack carried out by an al-Qaeda affiliate planned weeks in advance. That was the final intelligence assessment. Uh, uh, The Russia story. Yes. told there was collusion. Then we found out everybody knew there was no collusion and it was a bogus thing, right. but they went with it anyways. Uh, I think this story has the potential to boomerang around in a very different ending than what the American people were presented today. Stay tuned. This is Dan Proff. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. Again, you can follow the program at danproftshow.com. Follow us on social media at Dan Proft and at Dan Proft Show. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez taking to uh, Instagram or one of those online platforms where she doesn't get censored. Talking about the need for uh, media literacy, even invoking a favorite phrase of the left, Truth and Reconciliation Commission. I do think that uh, several members of Congress in some of my discussions have brought up uh, media literacy because that is a part of what happened here. We're going to have to figure out how we reign in our media environment so that you can't just spew disinformation and misinformation. It's one thing to have differing opinions, but it's another thing entirely to just say things that are false. Um, and so that's something that we're looking into. Hmm. 
she's going to be the arbiter of what's true. She and her uh, squad members, the arbiter of what's true. That uh, functionally should be interesting. Uh, Joy Reid over at MSNBC called for the debathification of the Republican Party. That's an interesting invocation. Tom Nichols, who is a member of the USA Today Board of Contributors, an advisor to the Lincoln Project, the home of some of the most angry individuals and vile rhetoric that is available in the public arena at present. Tom Nichols writes, the president's supporters now plead for understanding and inclusion for lowering the temperature for moving on. This is moral charlatanism, and I say to hell with it. It's almost impossible to comprehend the sheer moral poverty of the people calling now for unity. I mean, except Joe Biden, I guess, for Tom Nichols. Elected Republicans now admit they fear for their physical safety from their own constituents, but instead of thunderous defenses of the Constitution, we have soft muling from people like Marco Rubio and his Bible verse a day tweets or the head-spinning duplicity of Senator Lindsey Graham. So uh, there's no unity available. There's no inclusion or understanding available for Trump voters until unless they make amends for what they did by supporting Trump. For more on all this, we're pleased to be joined again by Brett Baer, Fox News anchor, host of Special Report, and also the author of Three Days at the Brink, FDR's Daring Gamble to Win World War II. That's a bestseller. Brett, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Media Literacy Commission, to make sure you're not saying anything that is factually incorrect. Government Commission. Depathification of the Republican Party. What do you think? Well, I think it's going down a really bad road. I I think people realize that, but we have to talk about it and point a spotlight at it. Some of the things being said over the past few days are really startling. When a TV host in a primetime show says that the 74-plus million people that voted for Donald Trump are on the side of the Klan, that's really something. I hate the whole thing of the hypocrisy of look at what the left did or didn't say when the BLM and, and the the riots around the George Floyd stuff. I hate it just because it's true, but it's, you know, that's the argument. But I think it's more clear cut. Now is a moment where clearly last Wednesday changed the dynamic. The Trump power base changed. But instead of absorbing that and moving on as a country and kind of trying to get out after that, the critics of the president are going for the full on chop the head off the snake to make the people who supported Donald Trump feel like they're somehow lesser because of last Wednesday and the actions of the rioters. I think that that's misplaced and actually dangerous to the other way could fire people up to um, do something else. And I, I just think it's not a smart way to approach it. Well, I, I think, um, yeah, that's that's sort of what Andy Biggs, representative from Arizona, said yesterday during impeachment debate or Wednesday during the impeachment debate, where he uh, said, you know, what you're doing is you're making a martyr of President Trump. And oh, by the way, as more information comes out about just exactly what went down and who the responsible parties are with respect to the assault on the Capitol. And uh, yes, there were certainly Trump supporters in the Capitol, but you had an arrest of a, a Black Lives Matter Antifa activist, John Sullivan, by the FBI. You've got stories now all over the place about information that federal law enforcement had in terms of pre-planning, get the FBI talking about charging a conspiracy case. They're talking about a conspiracy case that necessarily implicates pre-planning. So that's only going to further enrage the caricature of what happened on January 6th as representative of 75 million people who voted for Trump. 
Yeah, I, I would be careful about characterizing, you know, the people who have been arrested. There was the one guy, John Sullivan, who told authorities when he was arrested that he was documenting it. Whatever, we can look into that case. But for the most part of the dozens and dozens of people arrested, they are tied to QAnon and far-right militant or militia groups. So that's going to be a problem. We have to look case by case who was in there, who instigated it, and why. Right. But to paint with a broad brush... For anybody to say that all 75 million Trump supporters have the blood of that police officer on their hand because they voted the way they voted is such a sweeping kind of statement. It's, it's sad. The best thing that we can do is take the temperature down and report on facts. Uh, Brett, what's your assessment of President Trump's decision not to attend President-elect Biden's inauguration in terms of, of the impact of that decision? I would have gone to the inauguration no matter what. I mean, I I would have said if I'm really behind a peaceful transfer of power, there should be a visual. But he's choosing not to. So, Brett, Democrats in the Senate say they you know, want to move swiftly on an impeachment trial so as not to interrupt President-elect Biden's first hundred day agenda. So they're going to inaugurate Joe Biden and then immediately Uh, move over to the beginning of an impeachment trial? Is that how it's going to work? This is the weird part about this. So the president leaves office, and then this trial starts in the Senate. And, you know, I'm just wondering whether Biden is going to say, I know you have your marching orders, but we need to get this agenda through. Yes, you can walk and chew gum, but uh, maybe we should not focus on the trial. And I I don't know if that's going to happen or not. Yeah, I I think it's going to be very difficult to for Biden to pull them back from the brink. And by the way, that's just not who Biden is. I mean, Biden is, you know, he's a guy who goes where the wind blows. So we'll see. One of the other things, though, too, I mean, there's real disagreement about whether it is constitutional for the Senate to hold an impeachment trial after the president has left office. And I wonder if that gets litigated and provides some interruption to that trial. Well, clearly the way it was voted in the House, there were not committee hearings, there was not testimony, there was not both sides. That's usually the grand jury. The House is the grand jury, and then the trial itself is in the Senate. Either way they do it, it doesn't appear like it's set up to be a full-blown trial. Nor do I think the country at that point, once Trump has left, is in any mode to sit there and wade through exactly what was said and relitigate that speech on the National Mall. We'll see what happens. I think there's a chance that something changes between now and January 20th. Uh, one question that uh, John Solomon has raised, John Solomon from JustTheNews.com has raised, I think is a good one, is was it an intelligence failure or are Mitch McConnell and Nancy Pelosi not telling us something about what was known and should have been known pre-assault on the Capitol? Meaning that if federal law enforcement had an idea, like they do in advance of the inauguration, through chatter and the monitoring they do, that something nefarious was afoot, then either that was communicated to Capitol Police, to the sergeant-at-arms of the two chambers, or it wasn't. If it wasn't, then it's a communication failure. If it was, then Nancy Pelosi and Mitch McConnell haven't been forthright about it. I still think there's a lot we don't know. And, I, you know, we, we every day seem to get more information uh, on the severity of it. But as far as what was known and exactly what they did about that, I think there's a lot that we don't know, you know, as far as the why was the security presence the way it was? Why wasn't it where it was for some of the other marches? Why the head of security, the son of 
the sergeant of arms commits suicide. There's just a lot that we don't know. And uh, I do know that watching these videos, the police officers who were there performed valiantly to yes. prevent, first of all, the senators and, and congressmen and women uh, to get to safety. Uh, before we let you go, I know there was a charity event you wanted to mention, so please mention it. Oh, yeah. So we do this event every year in Naples, but now because uh, we had to do virtual, it's going to be open for everybody. It's really great. I've got uh, Brian Kilmeade and Charles Payne, uh, Shannon Bream, Emily Campagno, and me. We'll do a panel discussion with people's questions uh, who get tickets. And uh, we've got performances and then an auction. All goes raise money for Children's National, which saved my son, son's life now four times. And it's allstarpanelevent.com, allstarpanelevent.com. And you get tickets, and it's a virtual event. But the biggest thing is that uh, there are all kinds of auction items, like Zoom calls with talent or stars, or somebody could do your phone message, you know, uh, recording. And whatever, we're going to raise a lot of money. Uh, we're going to do it virtual, and we'll be live again next year. That's great. Okay, allstarpanelevent.com, allstarpanelevent.com. I'll repeat it. Um, uh, Brett Baer, host of Fox News Special Report, 5 p.m. weekdays, also author of the number one bestseller, Three Days at the Brink. Brett, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Okay, This is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. Project Veritas uh, at it again. James O'Keefe and his investigative reporters getting uh, all sorts of uh, information from big tech, including uh, some statements from that garden gnome CEO of Twitter, Jack Dorsey. Jack Dorsey is saying the following about uh, what Twitter has planned. It's uh, much bigger than just deplatforming President Trump. Just to close out a little bit, we, you know, we we are focused on one account right now, but this is going to be much bigger than just one account, and it's going to go on for much longer than just this day, this week, in the next few weeks. It's going to go on beyond the inauguration. We have to expect that. We have to be ready for that. So the focus is. Certainly on this account and um, how it ties to real-world violence, but also we need to think much longer term around how these dynamics play out over time. Um, I don't believe this is going away anytime soon, and the moves that we're making today uh, around uh, QAnon, for instance, is one such example of a much broader approach um, that we should be looking at um, and and going deeper on. So um, the team has a lot of work and a lot of focus on this particular issue, but we also need to give them the space and the support to focus on the, the much bigger picture um, because it is it is not going away. Um, you know, the, the U.S. is extremely divided. Um, our platform is uh, showing that uh, every single day, and our role is to protect the integrity of that conversation uh, and do what we can to make sure that no one is being harmed uh, based off that, and, and that is the focus. And, um, that is the, the color we wanted to provide. Couldn't you just listen to him talk all day? Is he just so enjoyable? 
Uh, for more on this, I'm uh, pleased to be joined by Terry Schilling. He's the executive director of the American Principles Project. The American Principles Project has launched a petition in support of uh, regulating big tech. Terry, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Hey, thanks for having me, Dan. Always love coming on. Your reaction to, uh, well, Jack Dorsey's statements there that Project Veritas was able to uh, obtain, as well as his tweets uh, the other day talking about um, how it was a difficult decision to to ban Trump. It was uh, he feels like it was a failure, but it was also the right decision. And he's working with other people to chart a course going forward. And now you heard from him in his own words what that uh forward-looking course may be as it pertains to more restrictions on his platform. Yeah, so I I think at the heart of where Twitter has gone wrong and where Silicon Valley and and the big tech world has gone wrong is there's an inherent anti-Americanism. And and I don't mean that in like they don't like America or they don't, you know, they want America to fail. What I mean is they reject the, the founding principles of America in that, you know, our founders believed in the people and they had an optimism in everyday people to be able to handle things. That's why they gave us the right to vote. And these Silicon Valley techs, they reject that. They, they don't even trust us to be able to handle information they don't want us to have, right? Like they, they want to censor us. They want to shut down. You know, they think that if you listen to Donald Trump talk about voter fraud and, and lack of integrity at the ballot box, you're going to go blow up the Capitol building. That's, that's actually what they're arguing now. So they have to save us from that. And I think that that's ultimately going to be their demise. And unfortunately, we're going to have to rebuild everything after that if they allow us to. I mean, there's... It's real concern that the monopoly is so deep that you know you saw what happened with Parler. Parler was the build your own um, solution to Twitter censorship, and they ended up shutting them down through their servers through Amazon. Um, well, so I suppose it, one of the lessons from Parler, though, too, is from the Parler example is, you know, you shouldn't rely on your enemies to provide support for your project. And um, frankly, uh, Amazon Web Services is. Uh, not going to be an ally of people who believe in free speech as imagined by the founders. No, that's exactly right. And the thing that's been glaringly obvious now is that we do have to rebuild everything. And, you know, building a whole server platform is very difficult and it takes a lot of resources. But we've been asleep at the wheel. We've been convincing ourselves that these corporations just want to make money. Well, they don't just want to make money. They have a lot more interest in controlling people than, than we thought. The bigger problem is... The premise with respect to the standards that are being set, and this shouldn't be surprising from the social media platforms because there's the same standard that has long ago been set on college campuses and then in corporate boardrooms, and they have much more cultural influence than does the government. And the standard is this, with respect to expression, if the consumer or the person listening is offended, if feels threatened, feels unsafe, then you should be censored. So everything is ear or eye of the beholder, no matter how unreasonable. And so it's very simple to silence your opponents, and the left figured this out a long time ago. You just characterize speech as hate speech. You characterize the speaker as a violent extremist. And then what you're doing in censoring them isn't censoring them. You're providing for the public safety. And that's exactly explanation that Twitter provided in banning Trump. 
the thing is, we all kind of poo-pooed the college stuff, you know, with them indoctrinating the kids. Is we said, oh, well, they're Marxists now and they're crazy now, but wait till they get to the real world. Wait till they get, you know, a real job and they have to survive there. Then they'll change. Well, now they've taken over the real world and they haven't changed. And they're setting the standards and the values of all these companies that they're enforcing on the American people. And it's, it's really, really scary. Yeah, and here's the thing. I'm not worried about Trump being silenced. He's not going to be silenced. The left really doesn't want him silenced, uh, thus the impeachment. Unites Democrats, divides Republicans. They're trying to keep him around as a, as a whipping boy as long as they can. I'm worried about regular people being silenced and marginalized and pushed out of the political arena and maybe pushed out of professional callings, too, and what that portends for this country in terms of peace and pluralism. Because if that's what you're doing, you're not going to have either peace or pluralism. No, that, that's exactly right. And it really is what's at the heart of this country is they wanted the power to be put in the hands of the people. And they wanted a million experiments going at once. They wanted information to flow from the bottom up, not leaders telling us what to do from the top down. We need to get back to that. We need to get back to the free expression of ideas and experiments. And even with this COVID stuff, I mean, we've had a great silencing of alternative ideas. At that same root is this belief that the people are dumb, they can't be trusted to, to, to decipher good information versus bad information. Um, and we just need to realize, you know, the elites can be just as wrong and just as bad um, as the people can be. So we just, we just need to trust people to make the right decisions and, and give them as much information as possible. Here's some uh, rather disturbing data. Scott Rasmussen polling finds uh, 25% of those surveyed on the question of whether or not we should divide America into red states and blue states. 25% support dividing America into red states and blue states. Interestingly, uh, regular churchgoers more likely to favor a red America and a blue America. 40% of those who attend church more than once a week support the move. You know, I think that that's rooted in this fear. I think there's a real fear among the base uh, conservative voters, they think that the Democrats are coming for them. And in a lot of ways, they have been coming for them for a while, right? Uh, when they, the PBS executives' words came out about the re-education camps, it's like, well, I guess you have to have some other type of re-education camps now that the schools are all shut down and the universities are mostly closed. I don't know. I think there's a real fear that, that people now want to shrink back and just protect what they have um, and make sure that their families are, are protected from any type of government overreach. I think that's the, the root of what that's what you're seeing at polling. He is Terry Schilling, Executive Director of the American Principles Project. Terry, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Hey, thanks, Dan. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show, uh, building on our conversation about big tech with Terry Schilling. Uh, Twitter uh, bans and tags in the interest of truth and public safety. That's what uh, garden gnome Jack Dorsey says, right? Well, I'll tell you what, I know one retired Chicago firefighter who isn't too impressed. Have you seen this story? It relates to trying to identify the person who may be responsible for killing that Capitol Hill police officer with a... Uh, fire extinguisher 
Well, they got a picture of the suspected guy, and he had a CFD uh, ski hat on. So uh, this was put out to Twitter with one person uh, tweeting, here's the picture, Twitter, do your thing. And Twitter did its thing, and they identified the wrong guy, and they dispatched the blue check mafia and all of the their acolytes to harass this guy, who turns out to be a retired Chicago firefighter, not a Chester, Pennsylvania firefighter. Chester Fire Department, not Chicago Fire Department. The guy passes uh, the uh, firefighter in Chicago, the retired one, who was wrongly targeted, bears a passing resemblance to him. And here's what happened. Uh, he, well, f- well, first of all, the retired Chicago firefighter, just to establish his alibi for you know those Twitter mafiosos, I know they're so evidence-driven. Uh, on January 6th, he was grocery shopping and celebrating his wife's birthday in Chicago. Uh, he lives a real life, so he's not on social media. He didn't even know he had been identified as the alleged killer. Uh, he um, uh, only realized that something was up when he got phone calls saying that you're an effing murderer who belongs in jail. And then TV news reporters were staking out his house. Chicago police had to dispatch a patrol car to keep watch on him overnight. Uh, the story has effed up my life, said the Chicago firefighter David Quintavale. So I feel the need to just report on this, uh, not to only ex- uh, expose the hypocrisy and thuggery of Jack Dorsey and the Blue Check Mafia, but also so that there's as much of an effort made to make sure people know that this guy was wrongly identified and so should be left alone as there was to wrongly identify him and mess with his life. For more on all this, we're pleased to be joined again by our friend Chadwick Moore. He is a columnist for The Spectator. Chadwick, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Hey, great to be here. Thanks for having me. Twitter, do your thing, and Twitter sure did. (laughs) Yeah, and Twitter is not bothered by that. And, you know, I wish to hell this guy could sue the pants off Twitter. And, you know, he can, but he probably won't win. Uh, And that's purely because um, Twitter and big tech benefit from, uh, and you've probably talked about this before, what's called Section 230 of the uh, Communications Decency Act. Uh, which is a gift from the American people and the American government to these companies saying basically they can't, they're not responsible for anything on their platforms. Um, you cannot sue them for anything on the platforms because they are neutral platforms and not publishers. But of course, they only are granted these permissions if they actually are neutral platforms, much like the phone company, which, and they do not engage in any sort of editorial activity whatsoever. They have to be totally hands off about the content on their platforms in order to um, be protected from such lawsuits, um, which, of course, they, <laughs> it's an understatement. They, they blatantly, obnoxiously, and rub it in our faces that they are not neutral platforms. And in fact, even in court, Facebook, a couple times that they've been sued uh, by people for censorship, have said in court, we're allowed to censor them because we are publishers with an editorial voice. They don't even care anymore how obvious it is that they're in violation of these rules. If, uh, and if Section 230 would ever get taken away from these companies, uh, and uh, then they could not exist. They cannot exist. They cannot make 
billions of dollars without these protections. Because if they do not have these protections, that means anyone that anyone anything that anyone says about you on Facebook or Twitter or whatever, you can sue them. Uh, you know, if your neighbor down the street accuses you of something that didn't happen, you can not only sue your neighbor, you can also sue Twitter and Facebook. So you can imagine how quickly the companies would completely collapse if they didn't have this gift from the American people protecting them from lawsuits, and they're not abiding by the rules of these law, of, of this gift that we've given them. Um, and of course, the Republicans have had years to do something about it, and they didn't. So uh, why that is, who knows? I would imagine because big tech owns everyone in Washington. Um, but you know, God bless this man, and I hope he does get some retribution. Uh, I want to uh, talk a little bit more about uh, this, the big tech piece, when we come back with Chadwick Moore. Also get the answer to the burning question, why do Trump bros love White Claw? Chadwick Moore has that answer. We'll be right back. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show, and uh, uh, we we're talking about uh, big tech. And before we uh, return with Chadwick Moore, I just wanted to uh, make sure people uh, caught what Laura Logan had to say on Laura Ingram's show the other night. But she made an interesting observation about um, the nature of the purge and uh, one of the ways it will manifest itself well beyond big tech. Uh, you know, retribution and vengeance is all over um, social media. It's all over the media itself. It was all over Capitol Hill today. And when they have the power to use the criminal justice system uh, to out. exact re- retribution, you see they've already. Yeah, look out. That's right. They've already laid the groundwork. There's uh, there's a move to have a new domestic, you know, a new war on terror. But this one, a domestic one against your own people looking inwards and uh, and against basically anyone who's a Trump supporter and who's white. And if you've got a gun, if you own a gun, you're on the top of the list. It's really interesting, uh, the connection she makes. Chadwick Moore, columnist for The Spectator, rejoins us. The the idea, like, that they're, big tech is learning from the big state and vice versa. Here's what you do to political opponents. You tag them as uh, purveyors of hate speech. You tag them as violent extremists. And then if you're big tech, that's enough to... You know, eliminate their footprint online. If you're big government, that's enough to use the power of the state normally reserved for uh, foreign adversaries, terrorist organizations of the variety like Al Qaeda or ISIS. Uh, you're, you're, that gives you the license to turn those powers onto ordinary Americans who just have a disagreement with you. Uh, Chadwick Moore, your reaction. Right. It, it, it's really terrifying how what incredibly sore winners they are. And uh, it's they, they, they took everything right. They won everything. And look at how they're behaving instead of celebrating, instead of being joyful about it. Uh, and instead of talking about what they're going to do to advance their left wing progressive globalist agenda, uh, which is just happening in the shadows anyway, uh, they are focused on vengeance and retribution. Exactly right. It's very, very scary. And, uh, you know, it's a chicken or egg thing. And, you know, in China, the Chinese government, I saw someone say the Chinese government owns, controls social media. In the United States, social media, it appears, controls the government. 
and yeah. they are, uh, and, and, or, and, and they're in, especially with the Democrat Party and big business, they're all in sort of direct symbiosis and moving closer and closer to this kind of managed uh, state-run capitalism like we have in China, which seems to be what they want and seems to be how they think the best society should be run. Um, and it's very scary times, and uh, we don't see that there's so many legal actions that could have been taken to rein in big tech years ago when they started this, this sort of behavior. Like, I mean, they're an obvious violation of RICO laws, of, of racketeering and corruption with uh, what they do with Parler, you know, which they, they moved across platforms, Twitter, Facebook, uh, uh, YouTube, uh, Google, Amazon. They work in, in tandem to get rid of people they don't like, to get rid of especially competition for mainstream media and competition for um, social media platforms. So well, it was, they work it across was... platforms to move Parler. It was interesting, yeah. So, uh, so Chris Wallace uh, previewed his uh, Sunday interview with Tim Cook, the CEO of Apple, and on the topic of Parler and Apple uh, taking Parler out of its App Store. And, and Tim Cook was like, "Well, you know, we just suspended them, and um, you know, if they uh, change their uh, moderation policies in terms of how they administer their platform, you know, then we'll put them back in the store." And it's it's, it's so interesting. Number one that as you were talking about before, the 230 protections, Section 230 protections they enjoy, meaning they're not liable for the content that people put on their platform, except they're holding Parler liable for content they don't like that people put on Parler's platform. So that little bit of hypocrisy. And then the other sort of reasonable man, uh, uh, you know, facade that Tim Cook uh Tim Cook purports, which is this idea, look, all they have to do is, you know, uh, is eliminate hate speech and we'll put them back in the app store and we'll tell Amazon to turn their lights back on and so forth. Well, the the whole point is all they have to do is behave like we behave and then we'll allow them to exist. If they want to be a free speech platform and take a more absolutist approach to free speech in terms of what they the content they allow on their platform, well, then that's a problem and they have to be eliminated. Right. Parler, for example, is in perfect uh, adherence to Section 230. Like, they're being like, we're just a neutral platform. Like, we're not going to censor. I mean, you know, obviously there's extreme examples and they do do that, you know, like direct acts of violence, et cetera. So like, uh, you know, child pornography, things like that. Of yeah, course. sure. Right. Um, but yeah, um, but they, so Apple is basically saying, uh, we enjoy these protections that we, that we snub our nose at. And we're demanding that you also snub your nose at these protections and behave like us. So, so Parler isn't in violation. Parler actually deserves Section 230 protections, whereas, you know, Twitter and Facebook don't. But this is a cabal. And, and they are racketeering to get rid of competition. They are, they are squeezing out the competition. What, yeah, nice, nice comment, Tim Cook. What timing that you just now discovered this moderation problem at the exact moment that Amazon cuts off Parler's servers so that took away their website. And um, and uh, and then Google also removes them from the Play Store, and there's all these hit pieces coming out in the media. It's a cabal. They're all working hand in hand, and they're all looking out for each other's interests. You know, like like publishers like the New York Times and CNN have for years been working hand in hand with social media companies in Silicon Valley because they're dependent on them for traffic. And so they want they don't want to upset them. They want to make sure they they have all sorts of deals worked out with them. This is why you see like their stories featured first and they're they're given like credible news source status and whatever. Um so that's why these like New York Times and, and, and whatever will uh will work with these companies to ban their competition. To ban, you know, some guy with a YouTube channel who gets way more views than the New York Times or CNN well, they don't like that. They want their eyeballs back. So, you know, Twitter, I suspect this is what goes on. Um, maybe we need to look into this guy for hate speech. Maybe we look into this. Maybe he's violating returns. 
Um, it's, they're all, they're all working together. They're all one party and, um, and it's illegal. <laughs> it's anti-market, monopolistic, anti-competition behavior. Why didn't Trump's Department of Justice do anything about this? They could have done this, you know, whether you like him or, or hate him. Um, a good example would be Alex Jones, right? You know, he runs a media company called InfoWars. They coordinated across platform a couple of years ago to get rid of InfoWars. They did it with any sort of big personality uh, who was also getting a lot of traction that maybe didn't have their own media company, but still nonetheless employed people. And, uh, and when this happens, these organizations, people lose their jobs. You know, people, uh, it, 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 it's crushing uh, people's livelihood. It's not just, oh, we got this hate speech voice out there, which is never actually the case. We actually look at what a lot of these people are actually saying, is nothing bigoted or hateful. But it's, it's crushing people's jobs. It hurts the economy. It hurts competition. And they're perfectly fine with that. They want to keep it all in-house. Chadwick Moore, a columnist for The Spectator. Thanks for joining us again, Chadwick. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks. Welcome back to the show. I want to go back to John Solomon. Um, Just the News. Justthenews.com is one of these uh, indispensable sites these days. He, He and his team do such great reporting, him in particular, and he has done so uh, previously, I mean, he really, I think, built his reputation before launching his own, uh, la- launching his own play, and I'm glad he did at the Hill, thehill.com, uh, before just the news was the thing. Um, and he just, uh, he knows, he's intellectually curious. He is asking good questions. He's dogging and getting answers to those questions. Um, there's not, uh, you know, ridiculous anonymous sourcing and all of the other pseudo journalistic tactics used to advance their preferred narrative of how the world should be versus what the facts say the world is. And, um, and he's running a lot of different tracks. He's a really important resource these days. And so something else he said recently, I just wanted to draw attention to because there's still these swirling questions about declassification of documents before the president Trump exit stage left from the oval office and uh, Solomon had some commentary on what he is hoping will be released with respect to the Russian collusion investigations. Uh, who knows if the Durham report will uh, be a ship that ever finds a port. But the release of Russian collusion docs uh, and what those docs might show to further inform the American public about how they were sold a bill of goods by the Democrat socialists on that, just as we talked about before, just like they were on Benghazi maybe just like they have been, at least in part, on January 6th. Listen to Solomon. Hillary Clinton's team invented the Russia collusion story Mm. and used uh, intelligence apparatchiks to to get it into the system after learning that she had new problems on her email, that maybe a foreign power had possession of some of her classified emails. And they they went out to, this is a document I've seen, vilify Donald Trump with this false story. That's, I think, what these documents will put Mm -hmm. into a time continuum, help people to understand a more 30,000-foot view of what really happened. Now, today, as I was working on this, I learned of another document that was kept from the president's impeachment team, I'm told, was kept from the Senate investigators. They only recently learned about it. What is it? It is an email on November 22nd, 2016, by George Kent, the guy with the bow tie, the Democrat star 
witness in the impeach- the first impeachment trial where they at least allowed some witnesses. Yes. Uh, and he uh, uh, wrote in November 22nd about his concerns about Joe Biden in the context of Burisma and Hunter Biden, the conflict of interest. We know he's testified. He saw the appearance of a conflict of interest. Yes. He tried to warn Joe Biden that maybe he shouldn't be involved in this, and he couldn't get to the vice president. This is a contemporaneous document where he mentions the vice president in this context. It was classified. Everybody who's looked at it tells me there's no national security information. The right. only thing this is protecting is not security information. It's protecting reputations. So we're, I'm hoping that in the next 24, 48 hours, the State Department will finally make this document public. But keep in mind, yes. we went through an impeachment, and this sort of critical evidence was not released. And uh, then the question becomes, if it is released and it uh, reflects what John Solomon suggests, will anybody be held accountable for that? Well, stay tuned on those counts, too, but don't t- stay too optimistic. At least I'm not. This is Dan Brown. This is the Dan Proft Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. These are our unalienable rights as enshrined in the Declaration of Independence, correct? Well, sure. But does that mean we should be consciously pursuing happiness? Interesting question uh, explored in a very good piece from David Robeson. He's a science writer specializing in the extremes of the human brain, body, and behavior. He's also the author of The Intelligence Trap, How to Revolutionize Your Thinking and Make Wiser Decisions. And I love his uh, piece, Why It's Time to Stop Pursuing Happiness, because I always think when people ask me the question, are you happy? I, I don't even understand the question. I, don't, I have no idea how to process and answer that question in any intelligible way. So maybe David Robeson, who joins us now, can help. David, thanks for jo- joining us. Appreciate it. Oh, it's completely my pleasure. Thank you. Uh, so um, we're, you know, this is sort of the anti-Norman Vincent Peale perspective, uh, the power of positive thinking and pursuing happiness, the anti um, you know, utilitarian uh, perspective in terms of how to think about life. And the research that you uh, reference in your piece suggests that by not being so obsessive about thinking about, is this making me happy? Am I happy in this moment? You actually wind up happier. Yeah, that's right. I mean, um, it's about a decade's worth of research, and the conclusion really is unquestionable now, which is that... um, the more people are found to value happiness through various questionnaires, the um, less happy they are. And in fact, the more likely they are to be depressed and anxious and have all kinds of mental health issues. So that's really interesting that there's some kind of ironic effect here that the kind of more you strive for something, the harder it is to achieve. And um, one of the other uh, sort of cliches that uh, you... um, call into question in your piece is this idea of you know visualizing the success you want to achieve or visualizing the accomplishment you want to accomplish and uh, and and some of the social science research suggests that's also maybe a bit counterintuitive but that's also counterproductive 
Yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, you know, again, it's about maybe two decades worth of research that shows that the more people kind of fantasize about a positive future, the less likely they are to achieve it. And so, in, uh, for instance, one of the first studies looked at um, kind of students who were kind of imagining that they would kind of pass their exam and that they would, um, you know, get a wonderful job afterwards. And then the researchers followed them up like um, six months or a year later. And they found that the people who had been doing all of that positive visualization are actually much less likely to have achieved their dreams and they were um you know more depressed as a result and now this has been replicated in all kinds of areas so um something that a lot of people might be thinking of uh, today would be kind of um losing weight as part of their new year's resolutions and you know you'd think it would be motivating if you would um kind of visualize all the new clothes that you might be able to fit in with your new figure but actually once again the people who are more likely to do that positive visualization were less likely to achieve their goal they actually were less likely to lose weight as a result and, so again and, that's, there's something really odd going on there that it's um kind of counterproductive well and, and what one suggestion at least that you referenced from one one scholar was that you visualize and then you get complacent you sort of imagine the future you're going to live rather than just being very sort of um reality focused you know very unromantic about it and like okay if i want to achieve if i want to you know make a million dollars then what what do i need to do i need to take concrete steps i need to think about what the obstacles are i need to have a plan and you know, so i don't need to daydream about it i need to you know, take the steps necessary to actually accomplish it yeah, that's exactly it. I mean, it really seems like at some level, the brain, when you do that kind of visualization, is kind of assuming that it's already happened. So its motivation actually goes down and it, it just doesn't take those concrete steps to, um, to, to achieve that goal. It's kind of, it, it kind of saps your energy almost rather than what you want to do is to kind of imagine that future. But then you also need to do this thing called mental contrasting, where you then also imagine all the ways that it could fail. And what the science has shown is that when you do that process, you combine the kind of positive thinking with some negative thinking where you actually contemplate failure. That's really the thing that energizes people and makes sure that they're more likely to, to do all the things that they need to achieve their goal. Uh, something else, too. I mean, one of the, the topics of conversation is always um, uh, in this area, in, in part at least, is, is living a life uh, in gratitude. Be thankful for what you do have. Be thankful for the people around you. And um, I don't think that's very controversial. But one of the things that's interesting about, again, the research that uh, you reference in your piece is that you can you can take that to a ridiculous extreme too? You can take that to a counterproductive place where you're sort of counting your blessings obsessively. Mm, that's right. So what they found was that people who count their blessings every day through something like a gratitude journal, where you just list I don't know six things that you're you're thankful for. Well, what they found is that actually doing it every day, those people are actually less happy than people who only did this once a week. Um, and there's various reasons for why that might be. I mean, the most obvious, I think, is that actually even something positive can begin to feel like a chore if you have to do it day after day, even when you've got lots of other responsibilities. Um, it can kind of weigh you down, just the feeling that you have to do it, and if you miss it, you're somehow suffering. But I think there could also be some other interesting points there that would be especially relevant for the pandemic. And one of those is that actually... Sometimes, sometimes you just have a bad day and, you know, it can be really difficult to think of six things that went really well that day. And if you're really struggling to list anything good about your day, that actually kind of 
is going to affirm your bad feelings. <laughs> and sometimes it's just best to kind of acknowledge that, you know, you've had a bad day and it's not going to be the end of the world, but something good might happen tomorrow. And that's what you see when people do it maybe once a week. It just kind of releases the pressure a bit to kind of always be thinking of the positive. And it's much easier over the course of a whole week to think of two things or six things that you, you can be really pleased about. So uh, since you're turning uh, all of the self-help books on their head here with this uh, uh, with this research, um, the, the the way to properly uh, you know manage life, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Uh, you know what what is? I mean, I guess you know you're talking about what you shouldn't be doing. So that sort of implicates what you should be doing. But I think you know, people always sort of need. Uh, a, a, some sort of conceptualization for an, a, an approach to things. And, and so as I was reading your piece, I was thinking of Robert Browning's poem, Andrea del Sarto, and the, uh, the line in there where he, uh, he's, uh, that, that, that uh, man's reach should always exceed his grasp or else what's a heaven for. So the, the idea that you know, striving is sort of the point. Mm, yeah, I think that's absolutely true. That, you know, one, one thing to, to think about here is to kind of, appreciate the process and to not always be looking to kind of maximize kind of every measure of happiness but to actually just to try to notice the small pleasures in your life at the moment um that that can make you happy rather than always questioning whether you could be even happier um i would say when we're thinking about things like new year's resolutions you know just a bit of realism there like you can come up with maybe 10 goals that you think is going to completely change your life but if all of those are out of your reach, you're just only going to end up feeling frustrated. So it's better to maybe pick just one or two things that are um, realistic to achieve and to not expect miracles. So to not expect that every day from now on you're going to be much happier than you were before, but to just accept that sometimes you're going to have kind of bad moods and unhappy periods, but that they can pass um, almost like the weather, that they're not something permanent in your life. And there's lots of good research showing that, that people who take a more accepting attitude to negative emotions rather than feeling that there's something wrong with them if they feel unhappy or sad, um, but just accepting that they, they're there and that they will pass, those people actually turn out to be happier overall and are less likely to suffer from issues like depression or anxiety. Yeah, and it's, it's sort of you know, the balance, right? I mean, you want to put pressure on yourself. You put When you strive for something, you're putting pressure on yourself, but it just can't uh, go to that place of um of of like sort of myopic uh, uh, myopia uh, myopia and 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 obsession it's you know sort of everything or nothing with respect to achieving this goal that may or may not be realistic yeah that's exactly it i mean i almost think of it as like um if you go on holiday to somewhere with great weather you know you're still going to sometimes have an afternoon with rain um but that doesn't ruin all of the other days um, where you have bright sunshine and we should think of like happiness and emotions in the same way that you know sometimes you will be disappointed but then other days you can still pick yourself up and feel uh, feel better again and it's just the important thing is not to catastrophize those moments when you do feel down but to accept them as a part of life David Robeson, he is science writer specializing in the extremes of the human brain, body, and behavior. He's also the author of The Intelligence Trap, How to Revolutionize Your Thinking and Make Wiser Decisions. David, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks. It's been my pleasure. 
the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. And uh, we had uh, one big 180, public 180 by St. Andrew of COVID-19 in New York State, State of the State address earlier in the week. We have another one, this time in my home city of Chicago. Mayor Triple Threat there, Lori Lightfoot, uh, at a presser yesterday, suggesting that it's time to start thinking about talking about reopening restaurants. We are very close to a point where we should be talking about opening up our bars and restaurants. If we have people and give them an outlet for entertainment in the restaurant space, in the bar space, we have much more of an opportunity, in my view, to be able to regulate and control that environment. It's so interesting, the uh, explanation she's giving for why she's moving off a position. Moving off, it's, it's a full reverse is what it is. And uh, this, despite the fact that what we've known about restaurants, sort of like what we've known about schools, really hasn't changed much over the last several months as the seasons have changed in places like New York and Chicago, where it's a little bit more chilly if you want to eat outside. Well, if you want to be forced to eat outside, if you're going to go out to eat, if you're going to operate a restaurant, then that's where you're going to have to seat your patrons. Uh, But the idea that, uh, you know, this is about our ability to continue to exercise more control because we have the problem of people not going out and then they're engaged in uh, behavior that runs afoul of the COVID protocols in private residences. And that's a little bit more difficult for us to control, you know, since we haven't formally introduced martial law and we don't have the resources to station a sentinel on each square block of the city. Let's, uh, Let's suggest that you come back to restaurants and then we'll make sure that it's safer. This is how we stop the spread. First, it's shut down the restaurants to slow and or stop the spread, depending on the day. Now it's open restaurants to slow and or stop the spread. You follow? But again, what we've known about restaurants in terms of the uh, percentage of cases traced back to restaurants, transmission in restaurants, under 2%. You know, nothing approximating uh, the transmission in private residences where these these lockdown and bus politicians forced everybody back into. Right. And by the way, what does open restaurants even mean? I mean, the uh, Chicago Restaurant Coalition is sort of begging for, and I do mean begging, for table scraps. Even in reaction to this, this, you know, sign of hope, which is, by the way, of course, being, you know, way overblown. I mean, that, that pronouncement from Lori Lightfoot is treated like Jimmy Chitwood saying it's time to go. Start, I think it's time to start playing basketball again. The, the enthusiasm for what? The, the Chicago Restaurant Association continues to draw a restaurant coalition, like draws lines and then erases them tries to work constructively with the city while seeing more and more of their members disappear. Certainly their properties are, their businesses are. And listen to this reported reaction to what you heard from Lori Lightfoot from said 
Restaurant Coalition. Now, after the mayor's remarks, the Chicago Restaurant Coalition sent a letter to City Hall asking for at least 20 percent indoor dining occupancy restored by Friday, January 29th. The coalition also said they will take maximum steps to educate restaurant owners about the rules and the penalties for any misconduct. Please, in two weeks, can we have 20 percent of our capacity back? I mean, by the way, this is something they've pled for over the several weeks. And it's always a deadline that they ask for passes. Nothing happens. They redraw the debt. They redraw a line saying, what about by this date? What about by that date? We're only asking for 20 percent. I'm sure that's satisfactory to some of the members that are have the wherewithal. Some of the restaurants and other businesses have the wherewithal to survive. And okay, we're talking about restaurants, but we mean the more expansive service sector businesses like health clubs and, and so forth. And so I'm sure this this is satisfactory, some compromise position that's worked out with our representatives talking to City Hall and so on and so forth. But it's insane. And you're gonna, that's going to go on in perpetuity. Oh, and by the way, according to the guidelines that the governor of Illinois has set forward, Chicago and Cook County don't meet them to reopen the restaurants. And Lightfoot and Governor Pritzker haven't communicated. Although Pritzker suggests, oh, I'm I'm open to I'm always open to hearing, uh, getting input from local officials and so on and so forth. But that hasn't happened. Despite what we know, despite all that's been done, despite where we are on case, you know, their metrics, cases, not hospitalizations, not deaths. And by the way, uh, it's not terribly better than it was when there was no consideration for relaxing any of the lockdown policies. A couple of months ago, several months ago, almost a year ago now. I know people are going to say, and we'll talk uh, after the break to Scott the Cog, I should lay a little bit more about this in the context of the Biden's $1.9 trillion proposed COVID relief deal. But people are going to say, oh, of course, uh, Biden gets inaugurated, COVID goes away. It's the same thing. Biden wins, COVID goes away. It didn't go away. I mean, I'm not talking about the the virus, of course, that didn't go. I'm talking about the response, the lockdown and bus response, this merry-go-round that we're on in so many big states and so many big cities within big states. It didn't go away when he won. It's not going to go away. Those policies are not going to go away because the power, the power that they have is not something they're going to relinquish. The profile that they have is not something they're going to relinquish. You know why? Because right now, until you really start to see the long-term economic consequences, they've engendered enough fear to derive political benefit from it. I mean, as I suggest, the supine posture of the Chicago Restaurant Coalition and something that, you know, they're not even considering so many of these go-along types with respect to these lockdown and bus politicians, by starting from their premises that what they're saying is absolutely legitimate and they've got great points and I'm happy to serve as a, uh, a, a, a as part of the snitch culture, part of your enforcement mechanism. We're going to educate businesses on the penalties they face. Please may I have 20%. Thank you so much. By starting from their premises, you're just helping to extend the fear that grips a significant percentage of the population. 
You're not saying actually what Lori Lightfoot, what Governor Pritzker is saying is wrong. It's baseless. You're not providing any context. You're not fighting for full occupancy. You're not fighting for your livelihood and the livelihoods of your employees. You're laying down in the face of things you know or should know are untrue. And policy responses that you know or should know are so wildly over the top as to be indefensible. But for right now, they politically benefit. It will take someone to suffer a political defeat. Maybe it's Gavin Newsom being recalled in California. Even just facing a recall may be enough to shake the confidence of some of these lockdown and bus politicians. That's what it's going to take. Because unfortunately, in these so many of these big cities and so many of these deep blue states like mine, you have weak voters who elevate weak leaders. This is Dan Proft. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. Well, uh, addressing the $1.9 trillion COVID relief package that uh, Joe Biden unfurled yesterday. Featuring uh, all of our favorites that have been applied over the years, different administrations, different crises, of course, were were the predicates, previous administrations, but the philosophy was the same. It was actually nicely summed up by a former George W. Bush chief economist, Glenn Hubbard, who's at Columbia Business School now, said um, one lesson from the financial crisis of, you know, a decade ago is that you want to be careful about doing too little. Yeah, that's certainly the problem, isn't it? The government uh, not doing enough. This is such a great encapsulization of uh, what I always say when government manufactures a crisis or even worse, a catastrophe. The problem is, or even just something actually small, a a program is not working. It's not delivering the promised results. You know, the problem is it's not big enough. We uh, fell into that trap of doing too little. And so $1,400 check to uh, all Americans under a certain income threshold again, you know, building on um, the uh, 600 from five minutes ago and the 1200 from almost a year ago now, uh, despite the fact that we know uh, it didn't work when Jimmy Carter did the uh, checks to Americans. I mean, in terms of stimulating economic activity. It didn't work when George W. Bush did it. It didn't work when Barack Obama did it. The evidence suggested the 1200 bucks didn't work last year in terms of changing people's consumption habits because people make consumption decisions, spending decisions based on long-term income, not uh, one-time payments. But we're going to do that again, and um, we're not going to fall into the trap of doing too little. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined again by Scott Chalady. He is... Fox Business Regular, Scott the Cow Guy Shalady. Thanks for being with us, Scott. Appreciate it. Good day, sir. Good day. Um, uh, and the other thing with these individual checks, right, if you do uh, $500 billion, a trillion dollars worth of individual checks, that gives you the cover to spend $500 billion or a trillion more <laughs> and all the other areas that you want to spend, like with states and localities and schools and so forth. <clears throat> 
Well, to that point, because the last go-round we had where we had the argument over whether it was 600 or 2,000 and Congress got all embroiled about the amount, you know, Americans are good people. I think that America would just shrug their shoulder and say, you know, it is what it is as long as that's all you got. But to see the 700 billion go abroad at the last one for gender studies in Pakistan, right? Then we have a problem, and that's where the Congress, because they're so out of touch, thought the problem was 600 versus 2,000. And no, Americans would have taken 600 as long as there was no money going elsewhere. But of course, that's the rabbit hole that they went down, and now we've gotten 2,000 out of it. And why make it 2,000? Why not make it 5,000? I mean, why not? You know, it's like why not make it? A, you know, like you said one time. What about what about 10 grand and a pink pony? We don't have either. Yeah. So why so stingy? I mean, why are, why are you putting a cap on it? You you dirty. You know what I mean? It's, we don't have the money. And the problem is, is that when you make this decision to uh, take away the, the the people's right to work and the people's you know right to uh, assemble, there's a cost to that. So you have to you know think about that when you make that choice. Uh, and so instead of in, you know informing everybody about what the risks were and letting things go as they you know just naturally go, when you shut us down, there's a price to pay. But they shut us down, not thinking about the price to pay. And number two is we didn't have the money to shut us down. And at some point in time, I've said this before, if we have another pandemic around the corner, we can't afford to shut ourselves down again. So what are we going to do, everybody? You're going to hide under your desk, or you're going to figure out a way to get through it. And so this money that we're giving back, by the way, is your money. So don't be so excited about them giving back your hard-earned money. And I don't like. <laughs> I don't, I don't like stimuluses because it's a one-off thing, right? I'd rather have a tax cut that, that lingers, right, for year and year on and year out. Well, so, if you don't like stimulus, that you're you're in luck because this is not stimulative. <laughs> right, exactly. This is exactly what I should be praying for. It should be five grand. If I hate stimulus, it should be ten grand, right? Because <laughs> it's not going to work. And you know, and and but it's going to make everybody happier. It's a short-term sugar high. We can't pay for it. You know, one economist said that the problem is not going to be. You know, ten years time, it's not going to be because we're in such great debt. It's going to be because our infrastructure has collapsed around us. I, I would take such issue with that because we won't need an infrastructure if we have no country. So stop it. I mean, at the end of the day, this is a, a very serious thing. I mean, and by the way, we throw around trillion-dollar word way too easy. And I've said this to you before. If you put you know, seconds back-to-back, if a million seconds back-to-back is like 12 days, a billion seconds back-to-back is 31 years, a trillion seconds back-to-back is 31,688 years. So think about a trillion for a second and think about how big of a deal that is. It's so disruptive and so disheartening. I don't know how we're going to pay it back. Are we going to just sit around and hope that we get a Bill, you know, Bill Clinton economy where somebody discovers something bigger and better than the Internet? Because that's all it's going to be right now. When we come back with Scott, I'm going to talk about a few more of the component parts of what Biden proposed, as well as the about faces this week from uh, New York Mayor, or excuse me, New York Governor St. Andrew of COVID-19, as well as, as we were discussing before the break, uh, Mayor Lori Lightfoot of Chicago. We'll be back with more. Scott the Cowguy Shalady right up. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. We're speaking with Fox Business regular Scott the Cowguy Shalady about uh, all things Biden COVID relief package, $1.9 trillion worth of it related. And we talked uh, about the one-time payment. Uh, Also, there was a story out uh, this week that uh, New York City, rent-controlled New York City, $1 billion in 
uh, unpaid rent. Uh, the average, I think, was something like, for the average individual, something like 15000 which is roughly a year for these rent-controlled uh, rent controlled uh, renters in, in New York City. And uh, they got some good news for them. Uh, part of Biden's relief package is forbearance on rent uh, through to the fall, through September. Your reaction to that? <laughs> I mean, what else? What can the reaction be except for a small chuckle? I mean, this is just not this is not the way to, to run. I mean, by, by the way, it's no coincidence that all of a sudden these big Democratic mayors are starting to open up their their uh, economies now that uh, you know Biden's in power. So January 21st, we'll see no more issues with COVID. All the economies will be open, I'm sure. But on top of all these uh, giveaways, and I've been saying this for a while, Dan, we haven't really taken stock of how deeply damaged this economy is underneath. And if you go down the line and listen to all the talking heads about, uh, oh, they're so giddy with joy, and they're saying we're going to have a 4 to 7% GDP this year. There's going to be a lot of money on the street because of what the Democrats will do with printing it. But our, our underlying economy, with the numbers that you just said, I mean, we have a problem, and there's some big cracks, I would say even fissures, and we're building on top of that. You can't have everything be hunky-dory without a foundation that's solid. And we lost 500,000 jobs in the, in the uh, hospitality sector last, last week, a surprise loss, which brought our, our, our monthly total from expectation of 75,000 jobs, 75, jobs gained to 140,000 jobs lost. We had a bad number yesterday when it comes to jobless claims. We've got over 19 million, maybe whole, close to 20 million Americans on some sort of unemployment assistance. I mean, what are we doing? Well, and, the, and the, here again, what do we have in the, the $1.9 trillion relief uh, proposal? Uh, enhanced unemployment benefits again. I mean, all this is 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 just printing money to hold people in place. Uh, but we're, for a lot of people, that's not a good place. No, it's not. But, I mean, it's just like we're one hair away from universal basic income. That's what it is. I mean, we're just basically paying you to stay home. I mean, and number two is we don't have the money to do that. That's the crazy part. I mean, hey, if we, if we were flush with cash and, and actually had, you know, a ton of oil or something and we were paying our constituents, fine. But we don't have the money. We didn't have the money when we made the decision to shut down in the first place. So here we are paying the piper, and we're, and we're, and we're not. And, and that's the problem. Again, when I talk to you about a trillion dollars, that's a lot of money. And we just don't have it. And I don't know what we're going to do to get out of this because we're going down the road. I mean, quietly, we're seeing negative numbers come across the tapes. Two weeks ago, we set an all-time record in negatively priced debt around the globe. We have $18 trillion of negatively priced bonds, which means you borrow money, and then at the end of that note, you have to pay less money back. How destructive is that? So I, I don't know where this ends up because we're clearly not smelling, you know, the coffee here. We're just going down the road of groupthink and make sure we're seen to be doing what everybody else is doing. And that's not a business plan for me. And uh, what about uh, the you, you mentioned in passing the, the big city mayors, uh, Governor Cuomo doing about faces, about faces in, in part. You know, it's, it's still very slow. It's very, very much of the variety of let's. Uh, talk about, think about how we're going to reopen. You can expect fractional reopenings, which aren't going to be sufficient for a lot of uh, service sector businesses. You know, I, it doesn't make sense for me to open if I have 20% capacity or 25% capacity, so I'm not going to do it. Um, I, I, it seems to me it's more than just about, uh, you know, orange man, bad orange man is gone. It's perhaps some sort of recognition about the money coming from the federal government even 
opening the spigots, running the printing presses overtime like Biden is apt to do, is not going to be enough for the uh, shortfalls that these big cities and blue states are facing. Uh, absolutely won't be. There, there's no way that they can get it back. There's no way that they can uh, accept government money to get get back to on their feet. There's no way that they're going to have legalized marijuana and gambling to get their money back. I mean, for for all intents and purposes, some of these these cities um, are, are 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 bankrupt. I mean, there's no other way to put it. It's just until we really call call it what it is. So, uh, you know, I, I think it also has something to do with power. I mean, I think they we gave them every. I mean, America was so quick to roll over, shut down your business, and hand over your powers to your your local authorities. And now those local authorities they have all that power, and they they're drunk on it. I think that's a, a large part of it too. Like, look what I can do. This is all about me. Look at the book I wrote while everybody else was locked down. I mean, meanwhile, I meanwhile, think- meanwhile, with the, the pronouncements they're making, they're confirming uh, everything that uh, opponents of lockdowns were saying uh, and, and were maligned for saying along the way, because where are we at with spread? I mean, we're, we're in no better position. In fact, we're in a worse position in a lot of ways than lockdowns 1.0, 2.0, based on their metrics of measuring just cases, for example, and so forth. Um, and so if they're doing an about phase, regardless of the evidence, what does that say about what they were doing before when they were locking down based on uh, so-called evidence? Well, they, yeah, I mean, they, we clearly had no idea and still don't, if you ask me, about how to handle this. And there's only one answer. I mean, you can't solve a virus with money. And we keep doing that, trying to do that. The American psyche is so bruised that there's some people I know that still haven't gone out to dinner since last March. That, so you, with no amount of money is going to change. That's why everybody's afraid of deflation. It's a psychological problem. Inflation, we've got tons of tools to handle inflation. But it's really hard to handle deflation because how do you make people spend money, right? Well, now we've got a situation where it's a psychological issue in the country. And they're trying to solve it with fiscal policy, and it's not going to work. You know what? It does. It just takes time, and that time means herd immunity. I'm sorry to say that. So the faster that we would have stayed open and gotten everybody to herd immunity, I'm sorry. This this curve idea that everybody talked about didn't change the amount of people that got sick. It just changed when they went to the emergency room. That's all that was to handle the influx. Well, we've handled the influx, and I'm, in order to get to herd immunity, vaccines is part of it because you're basically giving yourself the virus. Or number two is naturally catching it. And that's the only thing that's going to get us out of this, no matter what anybody tells you. And so you take a look at those two scenarios, go absolutely bankrupt three times over, or just let this thing run its course and try to do the best we can about keeping the infirm and elderly you know, safe and still say sol- mildly solvent. I mean, that's what the new paper should be written about. We've just proven, number one, what absolutely not to do when we, in the face of a pandemic. And number two, we've given, we've given a blueprint of how to take over the country to anybody that wants to take us over. Scare the heck out of us with a virus. He is Scott the Cogai Shalady, Fox Business contributor. Scott, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. See ya. Show.com. Welcome back to the show. To end a difficult week, I give you this unintentional humor from the San Francisco Teachers Union. The United Educators of San Francisco demanding toilet seats, toilet lids, excuse me, toilet lids in order to go back to work. That's what's been missing to make the school 
a safe environment. Toilet lids. Quote, demanding the installation of lids on every toilet which is not required or recommended by county, state, or federal health officials. Unquote. Uh Uh-huh. Now, uh, there's some basis for um, concern if you haven't paid attention to anything we know about COVID for the past, I don't know, 10 months. There have been stories about this, right? In the early months of COVID, where people are trying to figure out how it transmits, and uh, the media was doing a great job giving politicians, lockdown and bus politicians, fodder to fuel hysteria. There were articles like flushing may release coronavirus containing toilet plumes in the Washington Post. Toilet plumes, by the way, that was the name of my high school band. We were a whole tribute band killed with doll parts. New York Times ran a similar story um, and uh, cited findings of uh, Yangzhou University scientists claiming that toilet flushing could force aerosol droplets out of toilets, causing them to linger long enough to be inhaled by occupants and so on and so forth. Um, but, um, there's one problem with, uh, this demand by the San Francisco teachers union and what we know now today, which is why you haven't heard those stories. They've moved on to other more, uh, other areas more ripe for creating panic, have these, uh, DC press corps outlets. The uh, problem they have is that there is not a single documented case in the world of COVID being transmitted that way. Just a little problem. Science and data, well, there was supposition about the science that has turned out not to be supported by the real-world data of millions and millions and millions of infections, of hundreds of thousands of deaths, of untold uh, contact, contact tracing operations that have given us some sense of the incidence of transmission in different environments. But the ridiculousness persists. So I guess the San Francisco Teachers Union will have to go back to uh, you know, more reasonable demands like uh, for them to you know, go back to their jobs as teachers like, uh, oh, I don't know, passing the Green New Deal or taxing the rich. It's just remarkable, isn't it? I really hope what some people are suggesting that the teachers unions and those in charge of the school districts have really exposed themselves for who they are and what they think about parents and perhaps the quality of instruction their kids have been getting. I really hope that's true. And you see a migration away from these government school systems the same way you see a migration away from these government-centric blue states. Thank you for joining us on another edition of the Dan Prof Show. Be informed. Do that by listening to this show so you can stay courageous and we can live free and have a great weekend. This is the Dan Proft Show.